This week on Food Talk with Danny Nierberg, I talked to Carol Levine and Ken Lee, the co-founders and co-CEOs of Lotus Foods, a U.S.-based rice company supporting small-scale rice growers in developing countries through fair trade and socially responsible practices. We talk about their marriage and how they manage love and work, their belief that the system of rice intensification, or SRI, can build local economies, protect the environment, empower women, and get more crop per drop, and how they tell the story of their products to consumers. Please rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Food Tank. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Food Talk, the podcast. Today, I'm talking to Carol Levine and Ken Lee, the co-founders and co-CEOs of Lotus Foods. Lotus Foods is the only U.S.-based company that aims to support small-scale rice growers in developing countries by bringing their products to the global market. The company has relationships with about 5,000 family farms in China, Indonesia, Cambodia, Mask. Madagascar and elsewhere. Um, and these are farmers who grow heirloom rice varieties and they pay, uh, Lotus Foods pays about 30 to 40% more than other buyers. And they really help support fair trade and regenerative agriculture practices. Uh, Carol and Ken, I, I'm, you know, I, I, I was saying to you before, I saw the backs of your heads at Expo West, which is one of the biggest, um, natural foods uh, showcases in the world. It, it was held in Anaheim, California. I didn't get a chance to see you then, but I, I saw you both in January at the Fancy Food Show in um, California. And I, I, I just have to say that I, I, I love what you're doing. I've loved your products for, for many years now. And I'm so pleased to have you both with us today. Do you want to add anything uh, about Lotus Foods right now? We'll ask a lot of questions, but is there anything that you want to add uh, so that our viewers know more about you? Um, just first of all, I wanted to say thank you to you, Danielle, and, and how much we love what you're doing also and how important the work that you're doing is to the work that we're doing. So, you know, being in partnership with you is really, really valued. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. No, it's my pleasure. I, I just get to write about cool people. You are actually the cool people. So it's it's very exciting to have you you with us today. Um, I always start off this podcast, and I'm glad I'll get answers from both of you with, with the same question, and it's, what is your favorite food memory? And I, I suspect that you'll, you both have a, a favorite rice memory, but feel free to share, you know, something from your childhood or, you know, a bad meal that you've had, although I think you're probably, you, your, your, your bad meals are, are few and far between. But if there's anything you want to share, what got you sort of interested in food, um, I like to share these sort of personal memories with our listeners. Well, I actually have two. Um, I'll try to be quick about. Um, my last name is is Levine, but it's not really. That was a, a, a name that was changed when my um, great grandfather came from from Russia over to Ellis Island, and mm-hmm. he must have had Doctor Levine um, on the uh, on the boat, but his family with name was Lakshin, which actually in Russian means noodle. Nice. So I always loved noodles. Um, and there's interesting that one of our best uh, selling products right now is are our ramen noodles. Um, so yeah, I got it, to try those at um, the fancy food show and they were amazing. Yeah, they're really wonderful because we got to take a beloved food that everybody loved to eat whether they were in college right. or 
And now because of so much celiac disease and people who actually just don't prefer not to eat gluten, um, that we developed this lovely rice noodle, um, this rice ramen, and not just, you know, with white rice, but with our, you know, beloved black forbidden rice, or you take the jade pearl, the bamboo infused rice, or millet and brown rice. So we not only made it um, um, not you know, gluten-free, um, but also so much more innovative and interesting, good for you. Yeah, it's great. And it, it, it doesn't remind you of being a poor college student. It reminds you of something delicious and and you want to eat it rather than sort of having to eat it because you have no money. Um, Ken, do you, yeah. do you have a favorite one that you want to share? Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a great question that you ask people because uh, I think there's, it's, there's, so, there's so much to it. And for me, I grew up in uh, Rhode Island, uh, American-born Chinese, um, and my family had a Chinese restaurant. And uh, for so many years, I was uh, able to eat such great food. And then when I was about to graduate college, I, I realized I had no idea how to cook any of it. Mm-hmm. So I used to hang out with my dad and he would teach me stuff. And while he would, uh, you know, I, I shared this uh, at my dad's funeral seven years wow. ago, how he was talking about how to make the perfect fried rice mm-hmm. and, and how you have to like push all the lumpy pieces down and spread them out. And he had to like start with the aromatics first and you know, cook the stuff that's uh, more hearty first and so you get a good accurate blend of, of ingredients and layering of flavors. And and so on the surface, he was teaching me about cooking fried rice, but I think really what he was talking about was being able to blend in with people and mm. be, uh, accommodate different kinds of people and uh, have uh, conversations that include, are inclusive, not just... Uh, so. It was, it was, uh, I, I was, when I'm not, when I'm feeling better, I think I can tell this story a little more. <laughs> it's okay. No, but that's was, uh, really beautiful though. Certainly food as metaphor. Yeah. Uh, no, especially during these times too, when we need that kind of sort of kindness and, and inclusivity, as you mentioned. Um, so you, you are both more than sort of co-CEOs and co-founders. You've been together a long time and, and you, you come from different backgrounds and, I, you know, I, I think, Carol, you came from the fundraising world and, and Ken, you came from, you know, sort of the sales world. Why, why start this company? It's hard to be, you know, together as a couple and be business partners. And so, you know, I, the question is kind of twofold, you know, how, why, why start Lotus Foods? And then how do you sort of, you know, balance all of the things as, as both a couple and as business, you know, people and as business partners in this space? Yeah, it's another great question. It's it's interesting when Ken and I became a couple. We um, one of the first things we started to do was create these um, big party events. We we created a jazz club in our house. Oh my god, I love Hartford, it. Connecticut thought was like the best jazz club that they've ever experienced. <laughs> and so we started working together, and just we we our 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 strengths really complemented each mm-hmm. other. Um, and so we just thought, wow, um, what a what an opportunity for us to do something entrepreneurially together. Sure. Or doing something, you know, um, innovative and new is a lot of work, and 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 being by yourself, it's it's difficult enough. So at least as a couple with complementary strengths and weaknesses, yeah. we could really. 
we could really share in in the challenges and in the successes and 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 I have to say the last 25 years that that's exactly how it's been and it's just been an amazing journey that I love the fact that we were able to do it together and certainly it hasn't been totally easy but I think if we tried to do it again we would do it any differently because it's just been such an amazing journey to share yeah and I can see and and before Ken jumps in I I have seen you both together and it's kind of this amazing sort of you know back and forth between you two and it's something to really be admired and you know, whether, you know, I started Food Tank with, um, who is now my best friend, uh, Bernie Pollock, and we kind of have that, that similar back and forth and it, it makes it fun and it makes it, you have somebody to rely on and somebody you can count on that's more than a business partner, but someone you really believe in and, and, you know, who, who won't let you down no matter what. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I'll just share, you know, we joke around a lot, especially in front of our friends, like, we don't recommend this for anybody, sure. but just because it's, it is, I mean, just being in business is difficult enough. And then when you're, you know, friends, lovers, best friends, right. partners, it gets kind of convoluted a little bit, but I think as long as you, you continue to have respect, uh, for each other and, uh, you realize we're all going in the same direction and mm-hmm. that's, uh, it, like Carol was saying, it's it's been a tremendous kind of a path unwinding, uh-huh. uh, and it just gets better all the time, despite all the difficulties. But the difficulties make it possible to experience real joy. Absolutely, no, that's such a great way to put it, and and I love that you mentioned respect, and maybe that's what I'm seeing. When I see you both, it's not just respect for one another, but it's respect for the people you work with and the farmers you work with and for the environment and for really the food system as a whole. And I, I don't, you know, I, I don't know how coming from the the backgrounds that you did, you were able to sort of get into this. What, 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 was, what was the spark to say, hey, we want to start this company that's really focused on these these heirloom and heritage breeds of, of rice? Well, we took a market research trip in 1993 to China, and we, we at that time, actually didn't have any idea what the business would be. Mm-hmm. It was just it was research, and we actually came home with 90 ideas, but the idea that was the most exciting to us because we were both foodies and we love food so much mm-hmm. is we found the black rice, which we trademarked forbidden rice, um, in one of the first weeks of our trip in um, the southwesternmost corner of, of China called Sichuan Bana, and we were in a minority village, and we sat down to steaming bowls of this black rice, and here you're in the middle of China, and the, the land of white rice, and you have this amazing black rice that had this nutty, roasted nutty flavor with almost a hint of fruit at the finish. Mm-hmm. And we ran to the market the next day and, and, and looking for it and asking about what is Hamey, meaning black rice. And that time and throughout the rest of the trip, people told us the same exact folklore, that this was a this was called longevity rice or tribute rice because of its nutritional and medicinal properties it was reserved for the emperors to ensure their good health and long life wow. and, and that's why we can coin the phrase the the trademark forbidden rice emperor's exclusive grain when we 
um, weeks later were touring the Forbidden City mm-hmm. and, um, and came up with that wonderful marketing. Um, yeah, brilliant, and- actually. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Uh, Ken, do you want to add anything about, you know, you know, I think people love origin stories and, and knowing how to start a, a company based on something you really love. Well, I, I always like to say if I ha- if I'm going to write a book, one chapter will be called You Got to Get Out of the House. <laughs> but all that is to say that by going to China and just uh, being an open book and saying we're looking for a business idea sounds kind of incredibly naive, I think, or romantic. But it's because we did that trip, we discovered all these possibilities. And of course, having just moved from Connecticut to the Bay Area, obviously one of the United States food meccas, um, it just made sense that that black rice that we discovered would be the place uh, that we would start. And so uh, it's interesting because that black rice became forbidden to us uh, because for several reasons. there was some difficulties in, in getting that rice, mm-hmm. but uh, it, it did become the, the the seed for the company. And of course, Forbidden Rice still is our best-selling rice. And just this whole idea of moving into a pigmented rice varieties, the black rice, right. the red, that's really what we've been doing. That's the innovation that we've been carrying forward in all our new added value products is we've kind of watch supermarket shelves and we look at the white spaces yeah. all the we can innovate and it's like you know like our Japanese crackers those are made with white glutinous rice and what we've decided is we're just going to add more pigmented rice to them so yeah. the black rice is made from black and uh, you know the red comes from lycopene from tomatoes and we just made it more nutrient dense I think it's what people that's what people are looking for sure um, and at the same time, it has to taste great. And that's the first lesson I learned from when I worked with white table chefs is they would look at the rice and say, that's stunning, Ken. That'll look great on a white plate. But if that doesn't taste good, you've made one sale and that's it. Right, right. No, and so, I mean, go ahead. It's all the heirloom thing, you know, like with heirloom tomatoes. They just taste better. Absolutely. Even though they're looking. But in the same thing, I think with the heirloom varieties, these things have lasted through millennia, and that they, they they are the resilient ones. Mm-hmm. They are that that will will make it through uh, hopefully extreme weather and all that we're experiencing, and at the same time, are nutrient dense and good for you. Yeah, and and those are all great points. I mean, we're experiencing a lot right now in the food system in terms of how do we deal with climate change? How do we make a, you know, have a product that's nutrient dense that people love to eat because it does bring joy because it it's tasty. And I think, you know, I grew up in, you know, rural Missouri, right? And and my mom, you know, was probably a hippie to most of the folks we lived around because she, you know, made sure we had brown rice. But most people still only know of, of rice uh, as, as either white and, and in some cases brown. How do you educate consumers about all of these amazing colors and varieties and, and sort of the significance, the cultural significance of of these products. Well, that's actually what we've been doing for the last 25 years is the education part because when we started the company, we knew that we weren't that we were going to be innovators. We weren't going to be a copycat company. Right. So, introducing we were the pioneer in introducing the pigmented rices to the American market and um, it was just, you know, educating people that 
Um, brown rice is really great. First of all, what is a whole grain rice? A lot mm-hmm. of people don't really even understand sure. whole grain. And then from that, what does it mean when you have a black rice or a red rice? I mean, people still sometimes write to us, is this dyed? You know, um, but people understand just like in an apple, the skin is red. If you peel the skin away from the apple, you've got the white core. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what happens with a black rice or red rice. If you if you um, mill the, the, the bran off the rice, you're going to get white rice. And that's what most people are used to eating. And and also in, in this country 25 years ago, the most exotic rices that were imported was basmati rice and jasmine rice. Mm-hmm. And so introducing red rice and black rice and pearl rice and, you know, blends like um, volcano, which is a meritage of brown, red and pink and mm. Kalanjaro, which is like a baby basmati. These were all new to the American palate. Yeah, it's amazing, the variety. So so you both mentioned, you know, forbidden rice or the black rice before and how that's still your most pos- uh, like, you know, popular product. Is there a product that you tried to introduce that did not work out at all? Or a variety that people were just like, no, we're never eating that? Was there one that failed? No, no, nothing that we've introduced has failed. The only thing that being an agricultural um, crop, we when we were getting the Kalajira from Bangladesh, small family farmers in Bangladesh, and it was a shortage of, of or a perceived shortage of rice around the world. And so the government actually stopped um, allowing that um, rice to be exported. And it's taken us all this time, but that's when we started committing ourselves to the system of rice intensification. Right. And now this same rice is being grown for us in in India using SRI methods, using organic methods, and um, and and we haven't even imported it yet, but it's something that we will in the near future. But that's how long it's taken to get it back. But we still actually get emails asking, when are you bringing back nice. that Nice. That's really interesting. And I want to get into the this idea of SRI, sustainable rice intensification. That's actually how you you and, and Ken and I met because I we were writing some stories about SRI with folks at Cornell and, and elsewhere. And that's how I, you know, sort of came to know this lo- lo- that Lotus Foods was involved in in helping farmers implement these practices. So, can you explain to readers? It's kind of a weird acronym: SRI, Sustainable Rice Intensification. Can you explain to our listeners what it actually means? And then, you know, we can get into the more crop per drop uh, sort of campaign and and products that you're you're helping promote and and raise attention to to water issues. Sure. So, so SRI, as you mentioned, uh, is stands for the System of Rice Intensification. Uh, at Lotus Foods, we we choose to market it as more crop per drop. We just think it's more informative mm-hmm. and people are an easier way to enter the conversation. Right. This is kind of a less is more paradigm where farmers uh, can use less water, less seed, uh, no agrochemicals, and get bigger yields. So uh, typically you'll find, depending on uh, what good practices farmers have in place already, they can use 50% less water, 90% less seed, and uh, sometimes get as high as double their yields. So this is kind of amazing, uh, less is more type of thing, and how is that done? It's basically a better uh, management of the root systems, the water systems, and the, in the soil. And so 
Um, it's interesting. It, this started in Madagascar in the 80s. Uh, there was a Jesuit agronomist priest named Father Henri Lalanay, and he actually uh, coined the term Tefisina. So this is an association that he created. And it was basically means in Malagasy, it means to improve the mind. Mm. So something that uh, allows farmers to improve their lives, uh, not by buying things, but to, by simply changing their mindset. Nice. And so that's really what has empowered farmers to the degree that over the last 40 years, and probably more since the turn of the century, that farmers have adopted this in rather large numbers. Maybe upwards of 25 million farmers spanning 61 countries are now practicing SRI. It's still relatively a drop in the bucket, so to speak. Sure. But it's, I think it's, uh, our, that's our audacious goal is to continue to catalyze this movement to uh, allow farmers to uh, produce more from less. And in our case, we act as a market connector and provide them with like a fair trade premium. And so we think that farmers are motivated just like everybody else in the world. They want their kids to be able to go to school. They want to put food on the table, have a roof over their heads. Right, and, right. And have uh, working conditions that are, that are also fair. You know, the, the, my big peeve is that in agriculture, people are always looking at metrics like how big, big is the mm -hmm. yield. Scaling up, yeah. Scaling up, but what about the human asset? You know, mm -hmm. what about the people in the field? I mean, after all, it's smallholder farmers that produce about seventy percent of all the food produced on the planet. It's not big agriculture. Absolutely, we devoted hardly anything to these farmers in terms of giving them better tools to work with. Or, I mean, a lot of times you go out in the field and you don't know what century you're in mm -hmm. because they're working with their bare feet and their bare hands and some rudimentary. And so this is really a, a big deal uh, when, you, when you superimpose all the, the climatic and the social issues associated with how food is produced. Um, and so uh, SRI, we feel, is, 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 you know, I think most people maybe who are following these things are familiar with uh, Paul Hawkins' drawdown. And I always like to point to that because SRI is one of the Absolutely. 100 to throw it down, uh, you know, the, the carbon in the atmosphere. But SRI does so much more than uh, just uh, mitigate methane. It also um, it is a big stabilizer in terms of uh, families and farm communities. And, and providing smarter choices for consumers as well. Sure. And thanks for correcting me. I kept saying sustainable rice intensification, but it's system of rice intensification. But I think my, my slip is actually kind of correct because it, it does provide some sustainability. It does help farmers, you know, make more money and, and, and do things a little bit differently and, and help improve local economies. So again, SRA, system of rice intensification. Um, it's, it's such a, an interesting concept and one, you know, that I feel like folks like, uh, Dr. Norman Uphoff at, at Cornell, who, who's been such a leader in sort of promoting SRI and, and others, they're still sort of surprised that it hasn't caught on more. Um, do you think it's incumbent upon companies like yours to, to help, you know, encourage these practices? And if so, why, why aren't more companies doing it? Definitely more companies, they have to be the ones to help catalyze this change. 
and especially in light of what's happening in global warming. Um, I think what's happening with the system of rights intensification, it actually is being more recognized now mm -hmm. as an incredibly sound uh, agroecological practice. And, you know, just today we were having um, conversations with universities who are actually involved in helping to measure the impacts because why we're so attracted to this is just by the way we change rice, how rice is being grown around the world, we can have environmental, social, and economic impacts. Mm -hmm. It doesn't get better than that. I mean, no. it's just... It's a win-win-win. And now when you add the the, the mitigation of, of global warming that, you know, Hawkins talks about in, in, in Drawdown, and you add the empowerment of women who are really doing the bulk of the agriculture in the developing world um, that, and it's, you know, we call it woman strong and water smart mm -hmm. way to grow crops. Um, it's really a moral imperative um, why we have to really get involved. And so many more companies should be doing that. And, you know, and that's one of the, this is SRI is open source. So anybody can get involved in it. And anybody who has anything to do in the growing of rice, we hope really will get involved. And that's why our audacious goal is to change how rice is grown around the world. Because at this point, we have to. Absolutely. The urgency is too great. And, you know, we talked about this issue of scale before, and everyone always focuses on, on this idea of scaling up. But what you're describing, what you're both describing is this issue of sort of scaling out and spreading these practices. And, you know, We've talked a little bit about how big companies are getting into this space, but do you have specific recommendations for some of the bigger companies that what more could they be doing or what could they be doing if they're not doing anything at all? Well, actually, I'm talking to a rather large company right now and, and uh, you know, they struggle with uh, getting rice that's uh, safe and clean. Mm -hmm. and that what does that mean, safe? Can you talk about some of the issues with with rice so, growing yeah most people think that rice has an arsenic problem but really we have a human being problem on the planet where we just haven't been good stewards of the soil and we've kind of polluted the soils and so you know something like arsenic is a heavy metal it's part of the elemental table it's it's in our world but it's the inorganic arsenic that can hurt human beings mm -hmm. and so there was a study done by Consumer Reports, and they detected that the, the source of the arsenic was the rice syrup, the sweetener in the baby food. And so then they reported on how there's an incidence of uh, arsenic in, in rice. Uh, and so it was a nice report that uh, uncovered a real problem with journalism. But then they concluded that people should eat white rice because mm. rice has removed the bran layer. Um, and which is a totally wrong conclusion. They should have said that we should understand how our food is produced, who's producing it, what, what techniques are they using. For instance, when you have uh, heavy metals in soil and then you deploy farming methods like flooded rice fields, the water acts as a conduit to bring the arsenic up into the plant. Mm. So... If by using like something like more crop or drop or SRI methods of growing rice, uh, you would you would uh, mitigate that uptake of arsenic if there were arsenic in the soil. 
it could be from heavy industry, it could be from mining activity, it could be many different kinds of sources that why there's arsenic in the soil, but it's not restricted to rice. I, I bet if we just start testing every product on the shelf in the store, we're going to start seeing some problems sure. because we've bad stewards of the planet. And so um, it's a complicated issue, but so there are companies who, you know, they, they're, they're looking for safer, cleaner ingredients that don't aren't tainted with uh, things like, you know, cadmium or arsenic or lead and things like that. And so, so these conversations that I'm having with uh, larger companies who are looking for rice that's um, cleaner. And so these are real opportunities. More nutrient-dense, more micronutrients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's opportunities to actually engage these larger companies to improve their supply chain and at the same time help us to continue to uh, incentivize smallholder farmers uh, moving their farm methods over to something that's more uh, agroecological rather than the same old chemical farming right. method. You know, the same old USA guy shows up with special seeds that requires, you know, chemical fertilizers and things that yeah, farmers have to continue to buy that continue. I mean, these it's just this madness since the Green Revolution and then the redo of the Green Revolution that to take us back in that same direction. And so now we have like soils are being depleted and topsoil being depleted and soil that can't hold water. Um, there's, there's just too much proof that the, this chemical method of farming is, is no longer useful. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we say this all the time that the food system is, is broken, but there are ways to fix it. And I, I think, you know, SRI and, and a lot of the, the fair trade practices that you all advocate for are helping fix it. Totally agree. You know, I, one of the things that I appreciate about your company and some of the other companies I admire and have worked with is this, this, you know, focus on storytelling, right? And, and getting consumers not only involved in, you know, a beautiful product that tastes good and that looks good on their plates, but knowing sort of who's behind it. And Carol, you talked about women and we've talked about water. Can, can, do you, you know, I, I'd be interested in hearing, some sort of favorite stories of farmers that you've met on the ground and in, in some of the countries you, you, um, source from and, and hearing, you know, kind of directly from the folks you, you work with, what, why, why they do SRI or why they're growing these heirloom varieties. That's one of our favorite reasons to go, um, to the source, to go to the countries and to visit the farmers. Um, I just remember a, in particular, a Cambodian woman farmer, um, and she basically said to me, we now have more time to look after our children, to mm. sow and clean. We now only spend one to two hours in the field and can get work done during the hours when the sunlight is not strong. Um, before SRI, we had to spend all morning and most of the afternoon in the field. So this really has empowered women. Um, it, it, it improves their food security and, and health and income and every, it, it improves their health. I mean, growing rice is a backbreaking endeavor and with these conical weeders where women actually or men who are now love to, to get into the fields because of this mechanical weeder, 
the woman can say, I can stand up straight like a human being. Yeah. Um, imagine, you know, sitting or, 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 or being in malaria infested waters, trying to uproot, um, transplanted, um, seedlings to take them to the field for, for transplanting. I mean, it's just, it, it was, it's women, you know, don't have to work in flooded fields anymore. Right. The disease, you know, families can grow rice where where water is becoming scarcer. Um, women could have more time for other um, social entrepreneurial activities too. So it's really been it, it's just been so empowering, and that's why we say women's strong way to grow rice. Love and it. I'll just my favorite my favorite story is actually our first uh, market research trip to Madagascar. When uh, we learned about SRI through folks, as you mentioned, like Norman Upoff uh, at Cornell, as well as Olivia Vent came with us to, on that first market research trip to Madagascar, uh, where we were able to sit with farmers and hear their stories and tell us uh, their experiences growing SRI rice. And so this one woman spoke up very proudly, and it turns out she didn't even own land. The thing that was... Uh, big for, for her was that she was a sharecropper, so that meant she had to share part of her harvest with the landlord, and yet, she, the, by using SRI methods, she could grow enough rice to cover, uh, you know, to pay the landlord and still have uh, produced food for her mm -hmm. family in own land. And so that was, to me, it was very telling that, you know, this was not even a landowner mm -hmm. uh, is helping her and so that that stuck with me always yeah i mean that, the, the, these practices are truly transformative they're 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 good for communities they're good for empowering women they're good for sort of that inner intergenerational equity you know because when women are respected in communities their daughters are more respected it helps build exactly. respect for men and boys i mean we could go on and on the the economic benefits the environmental benefits the i mean i don't think that most folks who haven't visited farmers in developing countries understand how transformative this can be yeah and, and what it's really done also is it's opened the gateway for women to to kind of uh to take a place of honor in the community where they're leading this new revolution in terms of how to grow rice. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is these are smallholder farmers. And so smallholders, the problem is that you have not much land. And so smallholders typically have suffered because they didn't have enough land to grow enough food. So imagine being a rice farmer and not having enough rice to eat for the year. And what SRI has done is allowed farmers to grow enough rice to the degree that they don't even need to grow their whole acreage uh, for rice. Rather, they can grow high-value vegetables, mm -hmm. which you know, supplements their own diets, mm -hmm. uh, or they can take that excess vegetables and sell them into the local marketplace, which further raises livelihood. And so it's 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 then kind of created almost an entrepreneurial uh, environment where women have uh, become, you know, the, it's kind of a high esteem type of position. Right. Uh, and so then they, they get uh, respect in terms of being able to con contribute to the community well, at large. Well, they become leaders within their community exactly. as well. 
Right. Absolutely. It's, it's amazing. Again, so transformative. Before um, I ask you my final question, can you tell folks where to find out more about Lotus Foods? Site lotusfoods.com. And, and then if anybody has any questions, you could always ask questions at lotusfoods.com and we'd be happy to answer any questions that you might not find answerable on the website. Amazing. And you're in most major grocery stores, including my local Whole Foods, but a lot of co-ops around the country. Where else? Any any stores you want to give a shout out to? Uh, Wegmans on the East Coast, Stop and Shop, um, Safeway, Sprouts, um, and NCG. Uh, we love the independent um, co-ops. Awesome. Hey everyone, Steve Ray Morris here, producer of Food Talk with Danny Nuremberg, wanted to jump in with a little announcement. Join us for a live Food Talk in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill in the Rayburn Building on May 10th. And we also have another event at New York City at NYU on May 14th. We will also be hosting events in partnership with Mother Jones on May 29th in San Francisco and June 5th in Los Angeles. These will all be announced soon enough with more cities and dates. Tickets are already announced first and are free to attend for Food Tank members. Become a member of Food Tank now at foodtank.com join. See you there. Okay, so my final question, and you can both answer independently, is a little bit rapid fire. So I want you to, to say sort of the first thing that pops into your head um, when, when I ask it. So my first question is, what is your favorite book? 100 Years of Solitude. Nice. Good one. Ken? Daisaku Okada's Human Revolution. Ooh, nice. Okay, next one. Who inspires you the most? I think I know the answer to this one, but who inspires you the most? My mother. Oh, sweet. Ken? Carol. I, see, I did know. I knew half. Okay, and then the final one, and I think I also know the answer to this, but it is, you know, I, I know SRI is very close to both of your hearts because of all the benefits, but do you have a favorite innovation that you're seeing from the farmers you talk to or other businesses? It can be SRI, but is there a favorite innovation that you're seeing? Uh, the biogasifier is really pretty amazing that, you know, the farmers just love to show us the manure that they're, um, that they're treating that creates their um, electricity and, um, and cooking gas. It's pretty cool, right? Yeah. Ken? Innovation on, on behalf of farmers? I mean, favorite innovation that you're seeing in business, favorite innovation that farmers are cool. using. It can be whatever you want. I'm just hopeful, given the uh, the climate crisis, that the, that uh, I'm inspired by all these young people who are saying, "This is our future. You're messing with, and right. you're not just right as the adults in the room. So we're gonna take over here, even though they don't have voting power, but somehow they they feel empowered. And I think we need that sense of urgency on the part of everybody. Yeah, I, I find that inspiring. I love it. I, I love it. They should be voters. They should be making more decisions, and we shouldn't be making decisions for them. I, I full-heartedly agree. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you both. And, Ken, I know you're not feeling well, so thanks for being a trooper. But, you know, Lotus Foods, <laughs> I, I hope folks will seek it out at their, their grocery stores and co-ops. It's an amazing product. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Danny. Well, we love what you do, and thank you for uh, allowing us on your ear. Love it. Thank you both. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening today. A shout out to our producer, Stephen Ray Morris, who makes this podcast possible. And please subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you listen. 
It would really mean the world to me. You can check out Food Tank at foodtank.com, email me at danielle at foodtank.com, and follow me on Twitter at Danny Nirenberg and on Insta at Food Tank. Thanks again. See you next time for Food Talk. Thank you again for listening. Join us to see the podcast recorded live at the upcoming Food Talk event in a city near you by visiting foodtank.com slash events. Tickets are always free for Food Tank members, so join now and we'll see you there.